بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على عبد الله ورسوله نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد So we are going to start a new subject And this subject insha'Allah ta'ala is going to take us all the way to the end of the module Obviously we split it into two Fiqh 1 and Fiqh Two. And it's going to take us all the way to the end of the module in around about eight weeks' time, inshallah. And the topic, as I've said, is going to be the topic of fiqh. And more specifically, or more precisely, fiqh al madhab. And let's start by defining what we mean by fiqh. Now we've defined this in usul al-fiqh, but let's just remind ourselves about what we mean by al-fiqh. So al-fiqh in the language of the Arabs, linguistically, is al-fahmu daqiq precise understanding. Some of the scholars, they said al-fiqh is al-fahm, it's just understanding. But this is a deficient definition this definition is not complete the proper definition of fiqh and the complete definition of fiqh in the language is nothing to do with islam linguistically is precise understanding or detailed understanding and from this is the famous hadith of the prophet Whoever Allah wants good for, he gives him fiqh in the religion. The meaning of he gives him fiqh is not that he makes him Shafi'i or Hanafi or Maliki. He gives him fiqh in the religion. He gives him detailed understanding of the religion, precise understanding of the religion. As for fiqh in the technical sense there are many definitions i will just pick one which is al-ilmu bil ahkam al-shar'iyya al-amaliyya al-muktasab min adillatiha tafsiriyya this is just one definition and it's not a bad definition knowledge of the ahkam al-shar'iyya now we've done these in usul al-fiqh we did usul al-fiqh first for a reason and you did it with Ustad Abdurrahman. The whole idea is that your usul al-fiqh, you need to get it out and, and have it in your head right now. Because we're going to be talking about fiqh, and as we talk about fiqh, having those usul in your mind will help. So we talked about al-ahkam al-shara'iyyah. And we talked about them being of two types. The common name for them, or the name that is like, you know, usually uh, put out there is Al-Ahkam Al-Taklifiyyah and Al-Ahkam Al-Wadiyyah. The rulings, Ahkam, the rulings, which are Taklifiyyah, yani they are intended to convey something that you have to do. But we said that this is not the best name for them um, because the word Taklif has a negative connotation. Like, you know, the the burdensome rulings 
under non-burdensome rulings. And it's not really a very nice way of putting it, is it? And we're going to study the burdensome rulings of Islam, all the burdens that are on you. It's not, it's not a nice way of, uh, of saying it. So the better way of saying it uh, is sometimes they, they are called al-ahkam uh, al-amaliyya or al-ahkam al-talabiyya, the rulings which you are required to act upon or the rulings which you are requested to do. And then the other ones are al-ahkam al-wadaiyya, those rulings which do not, they are not things that you have to do, but we give the example of conditions and impediments and things like that. And you can go back to usul al-fiqh to deal with that. But in fiqh, which type of rulings do we deal with? Do we deal with conditions and impediments and, you know, the, the time starting and ending and all that stuff? Or do we deal with al-wajib, wal-haram, wal-mustahab and so on? We deal with al-wujub and al-nadab and al-tahreem, yani obligation and something being forbidden. So what we're doing here is, as the definition said, al-ahkam al-shara'iyya al-amaliyya. The shara'i rulings that you have to act upon. Where are these shara'i rulings taken from? Where are these legal rulings? These legal rulings that you have to act upon. So it's the knowledge of the legal rulings. And, and if we want to use a really posh word, we could say actionable. Knowledge of the actionable legal rulings. And the ones that you can actually act upon. Knowledge of the actionable legal rulings which are taken from what? Al-Adilla At-Tafsiliyyah They are taken from the detailed evidences In Usul al-Fiqh where do we take our Usul al-Fiqh from? From Al-Adilla Al-Ijmaliyyah We take it from generic things We talk about the Qur'an as an evidence we talk about the sunnah as an evidence and so on. We talk about what we do when we see a obligation and a prohibition. So it's very generic, you know, applicable, the, the rulings are applicable to, you know, large amounts. One thing you study in usul al-fiqh may be applicable to 2,000 matters in divorce in marriage in buying and selling and in wudu and in prayer and that one thing you learnt in usul al-fiqh can be applied to all of them as for fiqh now we zoom in usul al-fiqh is we are zoomed out so now in fiqh we zoom in and we look at individual issues what is the ruling on making wudu with seawater? What is the ruling on eating shellfish? We look at very specific, detailed 
zoomed-in issues. Adilla tafsiriya. We look at evidences that are specific to particular things. Whereas in usul al-fiqh, we zoom right out. We look at principles and we look at evidences that work for, for everything or for many things. Like we said, a single evidence in usul al-fiqh might be used in 2,000 different issues. All the way from wudu down to any whatever it may be. Transactions. And it might be used in all of them. Whereas in fiqh, in general, we deal with specific details. So if usul al-fiqh is the toolkit, fiqh is what you use your tools for. You take those general principles and general understanding and rules and you take them as a set of tools and you go to the Qur'an and the Sunnah and you pull out individual rulings. This is wajib. This is haram. This is recommended. This is disliked. This is permissible. So there's going to be a lot of discussion about usul al-fiqh because usul al-fiqh, as we said, represents the kind of almost the the precursor and I do think it's better to learn it that way and I, I think the way that I learned it I probably learned it backwards is that I did a lot of fiqh to begin with and then we did usul and that's probably the wrong way of doing things I think that the right way of doing things is probably that you only take from fiqh what you need to actually practice Islam and then you immediately start usul al-fiqh and you go back to fiqh al-madhab after having studied usul al-fiqh because Ultimately, everything we do in this class is going to be an expression or a practical application of what we have studied in usul al-fiqh. But instead of looking at it generally, we're going to start looking at the individual issues. We're going to get our toolkit out and we're going to start extracting and hammering out rulings from the Quran and the Sunnah on specific issues. So the science of fiqh doesn't deal with, for example, matters of aqidah. Because they're not from al-ahkam al-shari'ya, uh, or they're not from uh, these ahkam shari'ya amaliyah that you have in terms of your, any the matters of, uh, uh, of, of aqidah and, and things like that, and tafsir and seerah and all of that stuff. But instead, we look at these particular matters, these legal issues that we have been asked to do that are taken out of specific evidences. And that's why we said aqidah is not included because it's not from the ones, it's not from the ones that are related to actions. It's related to beliefs. So when they say al-ahkam al-shari'ya al-amaliyya they mean to remove al-ahkam al-shari'ya for example uh, the ones that you the ahkam shari'ya that relate to your beliefs or that relate to uh, the things that Allah Azza wa has put down within his shari'a's conditions or rules or whatever 
So we know roughly what we're dealing with. And there are different ways of approaching this topic. Broadly, and I'm going to be very broad here, I don't know, shall I mention two or three? But I'm going to mention broadly, very broadly. Either you deal with fiqh from the point of evidence, or you deal with fiqh from the point of the issues themselves. So you either start with the evidence, or you either start with the issue. That's the easiest way I can explain it in terms of splitting it into two, and that saves us from splitting it into three. An example of studying fiqh from the point of view of the evidence would be something like bulugh al-maram that we do on a Wednesday. Bulugh al-maram is a book of hadith. It has no fiqh opinions in it. It doesn't have anything in it about what the Shafi'iyya said or what the Hanabila said. It is a book of hadith. And from those hadith, the hadith are organized in the same way that a fiqh book would be. And from those hadith, you extract issues from them. This is what the Hanafi said, this is what the Maliki said, and so on and so forth. This is what the Shafi'i said, and this is what others said, and whatever. But your starting point is an evidence. You started with an evidence. You didn't start with a mas'ala. There's no chapter that says the ruling of eating prawns. Instead, it says the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi said, huwa tahuru ma'uhu al-hillu It is the one whose, the sea is the one whose water is purifying and the dead in it are halal for you to eat then you are supposed to take that and then say, within this hadith, there are 10 fiqh issues. Number one, the ruling of making wudu from seawater. Number two, uh, the, the ruling of eating things in the sea. And this covers five issues. And you know, you, you break it down, but you start from where? You start from the evidence and you go, you take the issues out of the evidence. And the second way, is to start from the issue and then bring all of the evidence in that relates to that issue. So for example, we start with the issue of the ruling of making wudu from seawater. And then we don't just bring one hadith. We bring ayat, we bring hadith, we bring statements of the Sahaba that support this issue one way or the other. So we start with the issue and then we branch out. So in the first one, where we start with the evidence, and this is often termed fiqh sunnah the fiqh of the sunnah, but it doesn't have to necessarily be. When we do this, what happens is, and just to let you guys know if anyone's still got their exam open, it's just 8.30, so please hit the submit button. When we start with the evidence, we end up with one evidence and lots of fiqh issues. When we start with the fiqh issue, we end up with discussing one fiqh issue and lots of evidence. 
okay? Which one of them is better or which one of them should you do? The answer is both. Why? If you start from the evidence, it gives you a very good evidence-based practice of your religion because you, you're linking everything you do to evidences. And the evidence is, is you know, you're, you're extracting and understanding all of the fiqh within that particular hadith. If you do the second way only, you're taking a hadith and you're leaving many, many things in that hadith, many issues of fiqh in that hadith you're leaving because you're only going to the matter that relates to this particular thing that you're doing. At the same time, if you focus only on the evidence and you don't study it from a, uh, the issues of fiqh perspective, what happens is you miss out. And what you miss out on is you miss out on masail that are not based on a hadith. For example, masail that are based on an ayah. Matters of fiqh that are based on ijma' consensus. Matters of fiqh that are based on qiyas. You also maybe miss out some of the details in terms of some of those issues. So when you combine the two, you get a balanced approach. You, you give time to study a book of evidences and look at the fiqh from them, which we do on a Wednesday. And likewise, you take time to look at the issues and extract the evidences from them. And ultimately, if you do both of those two things very comprehensively, you will actually end up with the same uh, knowledge, but in a, in a much more rounded and comprehensive way. Often when you study fiqh from the point of the issues, the evidence gets a little bit drowned out. You know, the most important thing is what the you know, different madhahib said and what the different scholars said, and the evidence gets a little drowned out. And likewise, when you study fiqh from the point of view of the issues, sometimes the, the madhabs and the opinions of the scholars get a little bit drowned out. When you do them both together, you get a really nice balance between the inheritance from the scholars of all of this knowledge and opinions and judging and, and, uh, and uh, reasoning and all of that, but you also get a very strong evidence-based approach to your religion where your evidence comes first and you give, it, you give it importance and you give it important consideration. So we think that the best way is to do both. Both fiqh from the point of view of the sunnah, any what we call fiqh sunnah, and likewise fiqh from the point of view of the masail, the issues themselves, the fiqh issues themselves. And within studying the fiqh issues themselves, uh, there are different ways of doing that. We, you already had some experience of Ad-Durar Al-Bahiyyah, for those of you who attended with Ustad uh, Abdurrahman. And this is, this is probably the, the, the least common way of doing it, 
which is to study a book from uh, a particular, you know, just a particular scholar who doesn't necessarily follow a particular madhab like al-Shawkani, rahimahullah ta'ala. But the more common way of doing it is the more common way of looking at it from the point of view of the issues is to and probably if you if you were being maybe maybe to be accurate you would say that Ashokani's way is probably bang in the middle between the two that we talked about which is why I said either two or three I mean it's because you have a lot of evidence based stuff because it's not based on you know the, a particular madhab but at the same time you have and you have a you're still dealing with issues the issues themselves if you study from the point of view of the issues themselves, the most common way is to study through a madhab. And that is what we're going to talk about today. Before we get on to the topic at hand, the topic at hand is going to take the, the, the following seven weeks, inshallah ta'ala. Um, three in, in one subject and then four in the next. But before that, I just want to introduce you today to the issue of a madhab. And one of the major aims of this course is not to teach you all these issues of fiqh because ultimately how many issues of fiqh can we cover in you know, 14 hours? It's not going to be a lot. But to give you an overview of what a madhab is and how to use it properly. Because a madhab used properly is a great blessing and benefit for a student. And a madhab used incorrectly can reach the level of being an innovation and something blameworthy that detracts from your good deeds and may even earn you punishment from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it's very important that we learn what a madhab is and how to use a madhab properly in a way that is pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And really this probably could be a separate topic but I've, I've put it in with fiqh because I don't want to take too long on it and the topic would probably be called something like tarikh at-tashri' the history of the development of fiqh during these you know during the the period of Islam the history of fiqh that's what we're going to talk about today how did we end up with a madhab what is a madhab and what do I do with one because I think everybody knows that the madhahib in Islam did not start in the early period of Islam or especially, and not uh, formally, in the early period of Islam and came much, much, much later. So how did fiqh start? What is the history of, uh, of fiqh? So the history of fiqh starts with the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And in the time of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, it was very, very simple. You had revelation and all and any matters of differing went back to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Every issue or any issue of ikhtilaf, of differing, went back to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and he spoke with revelation. That simple. So there was 
no disagreement, or you can say almost no disagreement, and whatever disagreement happened in a very minor case, because they were absent from the Prophet ﷺ, or until the revelation descended, was soon cleared up. There was no disagreement at all. Because everybody went back to the Prophet ﷺ, and there was one definitive answer from Allah One answer. The next period we look at is the period of the Khulafa al-Rashidin or the Khulafa al-Rashidun Abu Bakr and Umar and Uthman and Ali radiallahu anhum wa'radahum And here we have what we would say is minimal disagreement That's one feature of this time, the time of the Khulafa al-Rashidin we have minimal disagreement. I wouldn't say we have no disagreement, but we have minimal disagreement. And generally, in matters of ijtihad, matters of using your opinion, you see that generally the caliph, the khalifa, tends to be the one that has the final, the final say and the final kind of judgment. However, there is some disagreement uh, between the companions over certain issues, but it's very minimal. And the reason it's minimal is a few things. First of all, they are still relatively close together. So it's possible to get together, like Umar used to gather the people of Badr. Yani it's possible still to gather people together, right? The people are not that far away. It's possible to gather the collective knowledge of people in the sense of all of the hadith of the Prophet It's possible to gather, you know, the major narrators of hadith in one room. You can gather Abu Hurairah and Ibn Umar and Ibn Mas'ud and you can gather, you know, the, 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 the Khulafa and all of... Everyone is together in one room and it's quite possible to, you know, to go through an issue and to come to a consensus. And consensus is pretty easy to prove in that time because generally the companions are are together in one place and so disagreements are at a minimum there are not many disagreements and they're often uh, sorted out quickly ijma is easy to prove it's easy to prove that there's consensus on an issue and generally if there is a disagreement what tends to be taken as the standard position is is often the khalifa's personal uh, choice Also a feature of this time is Ashura So you do not have the Khalifa saying It's my way or the highway Like you do not have this kind of behavior Like of Umar saying I, the, the issue is like this All of you go home Rather Umar gathers them and says What's your opinion? What's your opinion? What's your opinion? And another feature of this is that there is no, other than going to the Khalifa as a judge, there is no sort of uh, factions or people going to one person and not another. Any people go to Abu Bakr in the morning and Umar in the evening. And people go to Ali in the morning and Uthman in the evening. There is no, there is no issue about I stick to Abu Bakr's rulings and I only listen to Abu Bakr and I don't ask Umar anything. It's very much an issue that people go to 
uh, whoever they, they can get access to. Whichever knowledgeable person they can get access to, they go to that person. So they come out, they, 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 they wait. And, and famously, you know, the hadith of Jibreel. When those two tabi'een came to Mecca, perhaps we will meet one of the companions of the Messenger of Allah. They didn't say perhaps we will go and see Abdullah ibn Umar. And if we don't find Abdullah ibn Umar, we will not ask anybody else because this issue is only his issue and we follow him and we don't follow anybody else. Rather they would, they went and said, whoever from the Sahaba we find, we will ask. And it happened to be Abdullah ibn Umar. But they would have been happy with any of the other companions that they had seen. They were just looking for a companion. The only exception to that, as we said, is that the Khalifa sometimes steps in and regulates things, especially when it's a matter of state. Like if it's a matter that affects the whole state, the Khalifa tends to come in and say, this is how we're going to do things. Perhaps an example of that is Uthman عن, praying the prayers in full in, in Mecca, in the days of, uh, of Mina. So this is an ijtihad from Uthman. It's an opinion that Uthman had. And, you know, generally, there were some companions who, who were upset with that. But in general, as the Khalifa, that's what gets done. And then when Ali radiallahu an, uh, came in, that was immediately, that was immediately changed. So you do have some very limited sort of regulation. But in general... It is still very close to how it was in the time of the Prophet ﷺ, except that instead of asking one person, you ask the best person you have availability or you have a chance to meet. After that, generally into the, the, the times of, uh, of the uh, Umayyad uh, Caliphate, Things are still fairly flexible and there really isn't anything that can be called a madhab although there are scholars who have particular whose opinions start to be recorded and noted and given some attention to and you have some of the four you know the, the, the imams and whatever but it's it's not uh, there isn't something which is sort of formal or sponsored or kind of promoted by the state as a particular as a particular madhab it becomes a little more difficult to get consensus on things and opinions differ more because of the appearance of bid'ah the death of the companions the spread of the people in the lands the entrance of non-muslims uh, into islam from the far off you know, from the far-off lands and, and the fact that you have many people coming into Islam who are very new and don't know anything about it and maybe don't even speak Arabic. You have a lot of reasons why disagreement happens and we've spoken about them before, why you have all this disagreement that starts to happen. But it's really in the time of the Abbasid Caliphate that the Madhab starts to gain some real traction. And that is really probably because the Abbasids start to sponsor, give state sponsorship to particular scholars. And whenever 
the state comes along, the country comes along and, and puts a particular scholar at the front, there's no doubt that that leads to somewhat of a, you know, a standardization and, you know, attraction around that scholar. So that happened. And you start to get particular scholars whose opinions, who have a body of opinions. Now at this point, bear in mind, nobody is like, you know, nobody is going to Al-Imam Shafi'i and saying, Muhammad bin Idris al-Shafi'i, you are going to have a madhab. You know, Bismillah. Nobody is doing this. Every scholar is teaching. They're just teaching fiqh. And there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them teaching fiqh all over the, the Muslim world. But certain scholars start to have a body of work, which means that their students start to gather you know, their work and they start to write. Of course, writing starts to become common at this time and books start to get published. And, and people, you start to get a curriculum developing around certain scholars. And one of the first things you'll realize when you kind of go into this is that the scholars themselves had virtually no influence over the madhab or the development of the madhab at all almost nothing but who really made the madhab are the students of those scholars because it's the students who actually started to gather together the material you know Abu Hanifa never said you know like okay we're now going to do my madhab day one, day two, day three now, he just taught it's his students who started to pull together things and say this is going to be, you know, we're going to put it together. We're going to produce a, a curriculum, a, a set of verdicts, which, you know, sort of bring together uh, the opinions of that scholar into a single sort of series that you can study. And not only opinions, but also, very importantly, usul. And really what differ, what differ, or what kind of differentiates between the madhab are not opinions because the Malikis and the Hanafis agree on loads of things and the Shafi'is and the Hanbalis agree on loads of things. Okay, just a small uh, announcement. It's a little urgent. If uh, Atif... Uh, Shafi can go outside, inshallah someone is uh, calling outside that it's important. Okay, so we said that the students are starting to put this together. And the, uh, the imams themselves are not telling people, in fact in some instances they are forbidding their students from writing down their opinions. And in certain cases, they are forbidding their students from writing down their opinions. And it's only after they pass away that there starts to be this curriculum in this body. And as we said, it's not just fiqh, it's usul, principles. How did the imam come to that verdict? But what this period of the Abbasid Caliphate is categorized by, is it still categorized by flexibility? And it's still categorized by probably development and, and change. 
So the madhab is, and this is another misconception we want to clear out, is a living thing. You know, and, and, and it's so strange when you hear people talk about, you know, I follow, for example, Abu Hanifa because he is the closest to the, you know, the, the, the time of the Sahaba and he met some of the Sahaba. But the reality is that Abu Hanifa doesn't even represent 20% of the Hanafi madhab. The madhab is a living thing. And he, he, Abu Hanifa is the, the one who pushed, started pushing the rock down the hill. Yani. But uh, the rock has been rolling and rolling and rolling and rolling for hundreds of years. And people have been adding yani, the snowball. Abu Hanifa is the one that made a tiny little snowball and he threw it down the hill. And now it's a big boulder that is running down. The actual bit that Abu Hanifa did is very, very small in comparison to what the students and the student students and the student students and the student student students all the way until any for a long time so this period of the abbasid caliphate is a period of development the madhab is changing developing the two students of abu hanifa changed a massive amount of the verdicts of abu hanifa based on what they found al-imam al-shafi'i changed um, an even bigger amount of his own opinions when he went uh, from Iraq to Egypt They're changing their opinions The students are adding opinions And the students are There is cross-pollination Maliki students study with Hanafi teachers And Hanafi students study with Maliki teachers And Shafi'i students study with Hanbali teachers And Hanbali teachers study with Shafi'i students And it's all cross-pollinated There is nobody who says I am Hanafi And I only study from a Hanafi doesn't exist at this time. People are going from, and from the very famous issue of that, Abu Hanifa's major students went to study with Imam Malik. They studied Al-Mu'atta with him and the fiqh of Imam Malik. Al-Shafi'i went and studied the fiqh of Imam Malik and met them there. So you have a shafii studying with the students of Abu Hanifa from Imam Malik. Can you imagine that? You have Imam Malik. On one side, he's teaching Abu Yusuf and Muhammad ibn Hassan, these, these major students of Abu Hanifa, and on the other side, he's teaching Al-Imam al-Shafi'i. And then Al-Imam Ahmad also studies from Al-Imam al-Shafi'i, and Al-Imam al-Shafi'i benefits from Al-Imam Ahmad. And Al-Imam uh, Al Ahmad narrates the muwatta of Al-Imam Malik from Al-Imam al-Shafi'i. And it's all cross-pollinated, and everyone is studying from everybody else. However, there's no doubt that the state sponsorship starts to form something that's a little bit, you know, like a madhab. And also, it's worthwhile noting uh, that the number of madhabs at this time is still much more than four. Although the number is dropping. How is it dropping? It's, it's dropping because the, it, the snowball is not getting bigger. Okay, so we have an analogy, you know, on the top of this snowy mountain, you have, you know, like you have these 100 or 150 great imams. And they take a little snowball in their hand and they throw it down the mountain. By the end of the Abbasid time, there's only five or six left. They're just not gaining traction. They're just stuck, you know, they, they, only, they only went like 20 meters and they, they just like, they only just got a little bit bigger and they, they just stuck there. It's a good example because that's exactly what happened. And you have like Al-Awza'i, 
Al-Awza'i, Al-Imam Al-Awza'i, a great Imam who had an amazing madhab, throws his snowball from the top of the mountain. But the problem is a Shafi'i snowball comes along and eats it up. Basically, it, it whacks into it and it just rolls with a Shafi'i and it just becomes, it just gets incorporated into the Shafi'i madhab. Sometimes people just didn't have the, you know, the traction, like for example, Dawood al-Zahiri, who was responsible for the Zahiri madhab. He was a student of Imam Ahmed and then he had some aqidah issues regarding the creation of the Quran and he was kicked out and he made his own madhab. But because he, for one to, I mean, in a simplistic sense, he rejected Qiyas analogy and took everything in a very literal way. His madhab pretty much died. Yani it, 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 the snowball didn't go very far. Because people are like, look, if you don't have an allergy, what do you do with all of these new things that keep coming? You know, what do you do with when people start asking you about things that have no ayah or no hadith that directly relate to them? What do I do with that? So it, kind of, it, it died because it didn't have legs. Yani it didn't have enough to, it didn't have the legs to keep going. By the end of the Abbasid period, you don't have that many of them left, but there's still probably more than four. When the Muslim Ummah splits up and there is no longer a Khilafah, a Caliphate within the meaning of the word, yani. instead there are really individual countries. And even, you know, the, 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 what is known as the Ottoman Caliphate was not a Caliphate in reality. Yani. It was a big country, any more than a Caliphate, but there were there you got Muslims who are like I mean even in the Abbasid time you had a split you had uh, the Umayyad uh, Caliphate in in Al Andalus and you had some other things break off in Egypt and things like that but when it starts to really break up where you've got all of these completely separate countries and all of these wuzara these ministers in the Abbasid Caliphate all become rulers of their own countries at this point things start to get messy. And what happens is the madhab starts to become an official instrument of the state. And you start to get told that this is your madhab whether you like it or not. And there starts to be very, very rigid. Before there was some, some rigidness in the Abbasid time. There was a little bit of, you know, I'm, the, the Hanbali opinion is this and it's better than the Shafi'i There was a little bit, but not to this extent. Now it starts to get to the point of being fanatical, to the point of being haram, where people are so fanatical on one madhab that they will ignore every evidence to the contrary, the sunnah, the Quran, anything, they will ignore it if it contradicts their imam. And you start to get fanaticism to the level that you have in the Kaaba for jama'at. A jama'ah for the Hanafis and a jama'ah for the Malikis and a jama'ah for the Shafi'is and a jama'ah for the Hanbalis and they all pray differently. And they don't pray together in the Saf. You're Hanafi, you go pray over there. Shafi'i, go pray over there. That's how it became. In, in many masajid, to the point that this became known in the Muslim world and you have some masajid in Syria and elsewhere where you have two, imam place, two places for the imam. Shafi'i is to the left, please. Hanbali is to the right. That's how it became. And the Abbasids actually encouraged with their state sponsorship of certain scholars 
they also encouraged these like, you know, debates between the madhabs. And you know, like fighting and, and this made it even more fanatical to the point that when the Abbasid period ended, you really had like extreme fanaticism. And you had them debating issues that were just, you know, ridiculous. Like they would come to the court and, and they would come, someone would come up with an issue that nobody can answer and make them fight. You know, like if you break wind in a bag, when does your wudu break? When you open the bag or... And like this is the most ridiculous issue, yani, which doesn't exist and can't, and can't exist and has no practical application. And it, and it does not please Allah Azza wa Jal. But they would debate it and they would, you know, philosophy got in there and, re, and it just became, you know, a big issue. It's also worth stepping back slightly, and I'm only going to take two more minutes. Uh, it's worth stepping back slightly uh, to talk about the, the, the sort of split that happened between the people of Medina and the people of uh, Iraq prior to the, the four madhabs really, um, although the four madhabs probably got involved in it at some point as well, which is that generally Medina was, um, here's my bias going to come in again, and Medina was a place of knowledge and hadith and ilm and everything good, and Iraq was a place of nifaq and lying hadith and fabricated narrations and bid'ah, and uh, yani, what happened was that definitely affected the 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 way that the people of the Sunnah in in Iraq behaved, and I'm talking about the people of innovation, the people of the Sunnah. Imagine you're living in a place like that. You're living in a place where, I mean, what do you do with a place that that some of them said about it? Ahlul Iraq, Ahlul Nifaq, and they're the people of they're the Munafiqeen, and you're living in a place that's known for being a place of the Munafiqeen. You're living in a place the Prophet ﷺ said, Al Fitna minha huna. Tribulation is from over there. How do you behave as a person upon the sunnah in that situation? What you do is you become very cautious about the hadith you use. You don't just use any hadith everywhere. And you become very cautious. You become very careful that what you're narrating is reliable. And you become very suspicious of different opinions. And what that develops is it develops a particular methodology in fiqh which is known broadly as Ahlul Ra'i, the people of reasoning. Why are they using their reasoning and less reliance upon hadith and, and all of the other things? Because they're living in that circumstance where so many fabricated hadith, so much innovation, you can't trust so you're left with you know what you know to be authentic and you just reason based on that. And then you have Medina where it is a very different situation. People of knowledge are there. Many people and, and the, the, the inheritance of the Sahaba is being shared. And here you have a lot more reliance on hadith and a real sort of dislike towards the people who are relying upon reasoning. And you kind of look down on them and like, look at these people. You know, they're using their reasoning and they're, you know, they're using their thought patterns and they're trying to like think things through when we have an authentic hadith for it. There's no doubt that that affected the madahib. There's no doubt that that, that had an influence upon the madahib. Probably you could say that the Hanafis were very much a product of Ahlul Ra'i, the people of reasoning, very much a product of that. 
and the Malikis were absolutely a product of the of of uh, Ahlul, the people of 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 Al Athar wal Hadith, the people of Hadith and Athar, uh, and uh, and you know relying upon evidences, and probably you can make a fair argument that a Shafi'i came along and kind of blended the two and kind of bridged the two back again and said, look, you know, like, there is a place for this reasoning, but, you know, when we have authentic ahadith, we need to, you know, kind of give more emph- emphasis to that again. So you, probably that would answer the question as to why there is such a difference between the Hanafi madhab and the others is that the others kind of came to a middle balance. The Malikis didn't. They, like, at the beginning, you have the Hanafi, you have the Maliki. And the Hanafis really represent Ahlul Ra'i, and the Malikis really represent the people of, yani, who are relying upon ahadith and narrations more than, more than reasoning. And then a Shafi'i blends between the two, but he still has a lot of narrations and in there. And Imam Ahmed comes along and re- reignites almost the science of hadith in Iraq and turns Iraq pretty much wipes out the the whole issue of reasoning from from that area. So you really, that's why you end up with the other three being much more based upon narration, focused upon the narrations, and why you get such a big difference between them. And that was not blameworthy. I mean, the people did what they had to do in the time that they were in. And the time that, that they were in was a difficult time in, in certain situations and certain cities. And that led to uh, a, you know, a, a difference in perspective, which led to a difference in usul. Which led to a difference in usul, a difference in the way you approach reasoning and you approach ahadith and ayat, which led to a difference in the madahib, which led to a difference in the madahib. Last issue, and to next week we'll start by talking about how you use a madhab because we didn't have time for it today. But what we will talk about very just, just to finish off is this fanaticism. Did it continue forever? Yani this, like, I am Shafi'i, I don't listen to anybody else, I don't care what the hadith says. Did that, did that continue? Broadly it continued. However, there is no doubt that certain people came along and kind of with a spanner in the works to kind of tell people you've got to get out of this fanaticism you've got to get out of this uh, crazy blind following and there's nothing wrong with the issue of following and as in attributing yourself to a madhab or just generally studying a madhab but this blind you know crazy fanaticism that came out and a lot of people there were certain individuals that came along we mentioned some of them uh, Ash-Shawkani comes to mind uh, Ibn Taymiyyah comes to mind even though he was no doubt a Hanbali but the, the issue of pulling people away from the fanaticism you know to have a Hanbali who comes along and says guess what guys there's sometimes the Hanafis were right and he, that's like you know in that time and he was imprisoned for doing that and he like he was imprisoned and he, for, for, for basically for saying to people for, for various reasons, including the Aqidah, differences in Aqidah, but basically coming along to people and saying, guess what, guys, sometimes the truth is in the other madhab. And, he, and this made people furious. Ash-Shawkani, likewise, was ostracized by his community for saying that it might be possible that the truth doesn't exist in any of the four madhab. 
and that there may be a truth, there may be something correct which is not in any of the former dahib uh, in certain circumstances. And other people who came along after that and kind of threw the, you know, the, the spanner in the works and tried to bring people back to how it was in the early generations. Where you can have a madhab and you can have a, you know, a, a teacher, but they, this fanaticism of ignoring the truth uh, is something that is, is, you know, it needs to be left behind. And I think to conclude, perhaps the easiest summary of that is a statement from an Imam al-Shafi'i when he said, Ajma' al-Ulama, the scholars are of consensus. Now, who did al-Shafi'i meet? He met the students of Abu Hanifa, and he met al-Imam Malik, and he met al-Imam Ahmed. So this is considered to be a consensus in the four madhabs, for sure. The scholars are of consensus that the one, that the one that the sunnah becomes clear to him. Now, the sunnah becomes clear. It doesn't mean that he, you know, he doesn't, you know, like he's still studying, he doesn't know. He has to, the sunnah becomes clear to him. It is not allowed for that person to leave that sunnah. It is haram for that person to leave that sunnah for the statement of anyone, whoever they are. And that was what Imam Abu Hanifa and Malik and Shafi'i and Ahmed were agreed upon. That if the sunnah is clear to you, it is haram for you to follow the opinion of anybody else. And there is no doubt that this is a matter of ijma'. This is a matter of consensus. Not only among the imams of the madahib, but also among the sahaba. And similar is narrated from Ibn Abbas and Ibn Umar, radiyallahu anhumah, or radiyallahu anhum, and many, many other sahaba. That if the sunnah is clear to you, it is not allowed for you. It is not allowed for you to, to, to leave that sunnah for anybody, whoever they are. Not for Abu Bakr and not for Umar and not for anybody else. If the sunnah becomes clear to you on a certain issue. And that is our conclusion. And next week we're going to talk about what you can benefit from a madhab and how you approach it and how the madhab is structured. And what is the structure of a madhab? And how do you benefit from one? How do you use it in your life? Uh, and uh, what, is the, you know, what, is the, what are the practical ways and how is, how is each madhab structured? And then we'll get into the madhab that we've chosen, which is, unfortunately for you guys, the Hanbali madhab, because this is what I studied to begin with and the one I'm most comfortable in. And we're going to be doing a book called Kafi Al-Mubtadi, that which is sufficient for the beginner, inshallah ta'ala, Kafi Al-Mubtadi, which is an introductory book in the Hanbali Madhab, inshallah ta'ala. But you don't have to change your Madhab, by the way, because you're doing this. It's for the purpose of learning only, inshallah. And Allah Azza wa Jalla knows best. Wa salatu salam ala Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi.